interested me. You know, this book, this book in this condition is worth about $100. However, in here, I I opened the flyleaf and I noticed who your college roommate was, was Jim Morrison of The Doors. That's right. Weird scenes inside the gold mine. guys i just want to hop in here at the beginning this is a great podcast with one of the best collectors out there uh, i'm sure there's there's plenty of great collectors and this is a part of a new episode type that i wanted to do so i've got uh this is going to be called i want to call these string episodes weird scenes inside the gold mine where i have a conversation with a collector a doors collector we talk about their collection talk about what got them into the doors into collecting and just talk about you know the doors in general and we have a great conversation here. Michael Papasino talks about, we talk about his, you know, when he first got into the doors, we talk about a lot of the pieces in his collection. I'll post some pictures with this. And we talk about his great group uh, that I'm actually a moderator on, The Doors Unendurable Pleasure Prolonged. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff. We talk about his test pressings of records. We talk about movie props from The Doors movie magazines he has, the press kit he has, even a very rare piece of memorabilia from... Uh, Pamela Corson's funeral and I'll include pictures of all that stuff with this episode so just find it on the socials be sure to join his group if you if you want just great doors content uh the, again the doors unendurable pleasure prolonged we also have a, a talk about the matrix tapes because he has a, a pretty that was the first connection he had as far as live shows goes so all that and more is straight ahead I won't waste too much time at the beginning here so without further ado, here is my interview. So what part of New York are you, are you from? Right now I'm living in Bayshore, New York. It is located in Suffolk County, Long Island. And I can give virtually an exact distance from Manhattan because we have a highway right here, Sunrise Highway. You take yeah. it to go west, like you're going into Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, so once you get on that highway, I'm exactly, it says 47 miles to Manhattan. And I'm like three miles from the highway. So I'm about 50 miles east of Manhattan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Lifelong New Yorker. I was born in the Bronx in 1966. I'm going to turn 57 next month. So my family and I, we moved out here to an area called Long Beach, New York, not California, oh, okay. in uh, 1980. So I was about 14 at the time. And then around that year, like 1980, I really started uh, becoming an, I mean, I read a lot, but I really became an avid reader. And then I even ventured out. I started trying to write my own poetry and keep journals. I'm not going to say it was great or anything. It wasn't. Except for a few little things in college, I didn't get anything published. But it was the satisfaction 
of expressing my thoughts at all. And I think looking back on it now, I think I might've had the problem as a writer that Jim had early on and Jim admitted this early on, you know, some critics even brought up, it seemed like some of his thoughts were just recyclings of other writers and you might recall, I'm sure you've read about the famous incident. I think Dennis Jacob was there where Jim actually um, burned some of his journals and yeah. writings. And he said, man, you know, why are you doing that? And he said, because it's the only way I'm going to write anything original. And he, Dennis, said, you know, kind of said one page. And he, and he did give Dennis one page of it. But, yeah, I, I knew that feeling. You know, it wasn't easy to come up with original stuff, but I thought the process was worth it. So that leads me to the following year. This is a formative year. So 1981, I can give an exact date, June 23rd, 1981. I I turned 15 that day. My family, my brother, mom and dad, cousin, we all went made a beach day up. If you ever go to Long Beach, New York, go to the beach. We used to live um, five blocks from the beach, Paradise. We're going to go see it again this summer. And that day, you know, we're doing some boogie boarding. I wasn't a great surfer, but I love the water. Yeah. I came out of the water. I'm drying off. There's a guy 20, 25 feet away playing, um, I guess it was like a primitive boom box. And it played cassettes because that's what people did back then. And and it turned out he was playing Break On Through, which I, I had never heard. And, you know, I'm listening to it walk through the air to it on this beautiful day. And the words definitely were not ordinary for a rock or a pop song. So the lyrics captivated me, captivated me but also that voice. I walked yeah. over to him. I said, I said you know, hey, dude, you know, that, that's really cool what you're playing. What is that? And he showed me the cover of the cassette, you know, the famous cover of the first album. And he was telling me how great they were. He liked them a lot. And I said, yeah, I, I got to get the rest of this cassette. And I hadn't gotten my allowance yet. I wasn't starting my newspaper carrying job for like another week or two. I said, come on, let me have like seven or eight bucks. We had this place, Echo Records, on Little or there. And I said, mom, please, you can take it out of my allowance. I got to get this cassette. So she gave me like a 10. So I got change. And I ran there. I remember I was so excited. I ran there barefoot, you know. (laughs) Beach. It was like three or four blocks to there. I just went there barefoot and got it. And I I didn't have anything with me to play it. I played it when I got home. And when I did, I mean, just the lyrics were otherworldly, so far advanced. I was hooked, man. I was hooked. You know, they weren't the only band I listened to. You know, I was also heavily into Zeppelin. I collect a little Zeppelin too. You know, later on, I got into YouTube, please, classic rock. I'm a classic rock guy. But the doors were the litmus test for me. And I said, I got to get I, I, I gotta get the rest of these studio albums. I want to hear everything the sky ever sang, what he wrote. 
And my thinking evolved as I went through the albums. It was just incredible. And I'll go ahead and introduce you here. I'll, I'll probably put a stinger at the beginning to actually introduce you formally, but we were just sort of in conversation. I wanted to pick up and, and talk about it. We are here with Doors Collector, Michael Papacino, making sure I got that pronunciation correct. And got it. And you know, uh, uh, Michael, one thing that, that you've said, and I think that rings true with me and other people I've talked to, it seems there's a very formative age, like a, a preteen to teen, where if you experience the doors there, it's like it it just it, it sinks in, you know. I don't know. There's something about that preteen age where it just it just happens to latch on to you. I was in sixth grade whenever I first heard the doors, and I heard the '85 debut or not the '85 best of album with the young line shoot on the front, the we you know the famous cross pose that he did. And right. I ended up falling in love with that album. First song I ever heard was when the music's over. I had a sort of a beat up copy that I had to skip tracks to. And finally I got a copy and I could have probably brought a new CD. This was only, uh, cause I'm 29. So this was probably 2006 ish, probably around there where, where, and that was the first time I've ever heard. I, I mean, I'm sure I heard like riders on the storm, I think by the Snoop Dogg version or something before then, but that was the first real conscious listening of them I had. And, and another interesting fact that you did I think in it that I sort of had, I was real big into English in college and in high school, I got into it because of the doors, because of Jim, I ended up looking into who I was very interested in the lyrics. And I wanted to see the backgrounds and it got me, you know, reading, uh, on the road and reading some of the beat poets of the time. And that's sort of how my English, because I ended up, I was, I majored in English for a little bit. I ended up changing after a while. Uh, and changing teaching altogether after sort of the landscape changed, and I didn't know if I, that's what I wanted to do, very indecisive. But I was a tutor uh, hired by the college I attended at the time to be an English tutor. I wrote some stuff, and I was really interested in English and real interested in the writers, and eventually it just sort of got to where I moved on from that. But I still love the the artistry of writing and Jim's writing. I, in middle school, I remember riding the bus to school with uh, – the American night was at the, or no, it was lost wilderness. I think the sort of light bluish purple cover, uh, poetry book that had, that they published. And I remember reading that on the school bus on the way to school with my little zoom player listening to the doors. Yeah. We have, um, quite a few similarities with pivotal events. I could say, you know, now I've been a substitute teacher for a few years for a local school district, but I worked from 1994 to 2010 as a high school English teacher for a, an alternative program. It was run by an educational corporation for at-risk students. Yeah. And I'm proud to say at certain occasions when I could, I would insert some of Jim's poetry because I, I always consider him to be a real poet. And yeah, I don't think I would become as fervent and as passionate a reader, and then later with my journals. Well, I've still kept some of them. You know, I chuckle at them now. I mean, they're not that good. But, you know, expressing your thoughts, that's what matters. Jim himself said something that impressed me. He said, you know, I mean, who's to say what great poetry is? All, all poetry does is it opens the doors. It opens the possibilities. You know, Joycean, stream of consciousness, you could see something in a poem. I see something else, and it works for both of us. Yeah. You know, uh, none of us are qualified to judge perfect 
poetry. Yeah, no, he definitely inspired me in that way. And by the time I had really pretty much worn out the six cassettes, because eventually they kind of uh, rip up stuff they're made of. And then the studio albums have the scratches in them. Yeah. You know, later I would get better copies, of course, that were ultrasonically cleaned. But I have the original scratched up ones. But that's where I had to start. Because then, you know, I, I would say the next chapter in my journey, because I'm going to be fast forwarding like 11 years to 1992, when grad school, yay, school's finally done after yeah. seven years of college and all that. That's when I got into the next level of, I would say, my door's passion, you know, because mm-hmm. what happened then? So, you know, fast forward, 1992, unfortunately, it was not a good time to finish graduate school. My parents really never had a lot of money, you know, always, you know, struggling, hardworking. People just never had a lot of money. I had to pay my way through seven years of school. Like you, I tutored. That's how I got through grad school. It took me three years to get my master's from Dowling College here on Long Island. Sadly, does not exist anymore. Great school. But I would tutor during the day with students needing help with English classes, writing essays. Anything involving reading, comprehension, or writing, that money paid my tuition. Tutored a day and took my classes at night. And I squeaked by, you know, May 1992, I'm holding my Master of Science degree in secondary ed. I I, I joked with people afterwards. On that day, I could put my hand in my pocket and just feel my leg, meaning like there was nothing in my wallet. (laughs) You know, yeah. um, I I had paid my debts off from school, but I had nothing. And it was not a good time to graduate because there was a recession going on. Um, it took me to till 1994 to finally get my first real teaching job. But in the meantime, you know, I tutored when I could. I was still living at home, didn't have a lot of bills. So I would have some money put aside. And what I would do is I would go into Manhattan at least once or twice a month, more often than that, twice, but specifically to Greenwich Village. And I would go there for two reasons. One of my hobbies is I'm an expert chess player. I also teach chess. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm a U.S. Chess Federation expert. And it's one of my side jobs. I teach chess. Just a hobby. Turned into if I can cut you off, I'm sorry. That was another unique connection. I was the, we didn't have a chess club. So I founded the chess club uh, at, at our high school that we had, or I didn't found it, but I helped sort of get it started. We didn't have one and I'm, and I'm not good at chess at all. I never did uh, apply myself enough, but I felt like that there was enough. And of course I played at sports in high school, but I always found chess a, a fascinating game. And it really, uh, I mean, you, it says a lot of person about a person, you know, the way that they, the strategy and stuff, it's very interesting. Oh, it does. Yeah. I would just say a quick segue. Chess is an extension of one's personality in real life. I'm a shy, quiet guy and, you know, I'm not really aggressive or risk taker. And I play chess patiently and, you know, maneuvering around like I do in life, but people are aggressive 
extrovert to take chances. And also in chess, you know, lies and hypocrisy do not survive long over the chessboard. Bobby Fischer said that. It's the truth is in the moves, whether it's over the 64 squares or in life. And it, you know, just it improves critical thinking. I'll throw in, I actually did my master's thesis on chess, the relationship between chess and mathematics. I went into two high schools. It took a year. And my theory, and it wasn't totally new, but there was barely any literature on it at the time. Later on, it exploded. Yeah. But uh, my theory was, if you have two classes, and one of two math classes, we got, I think they were ninth grade, very similar in ability. Well, one of them, we throw in chess instruction along with the math. And the other one, they got just math. My theory was because chess involves analysis of patterns and sequential thinking, it would improve math ability. Because you're basically solving equations over a chessboard. And it proved to be true. And there and there have been numerous studies in 31 years since then. So I didn't come up with the idea, but it was kind of fresh ground at the time. It's a fascinating game. I, I teach it on the side. I play it. But to segue back into the doors, that was how I originally got to go to Greenwich Village twice a week. I had my little paradise so to speak so you know manhattan's huge you've never been there but what i would do i'd get off the train at the subway west fourth street everything a rock enthusiast chess enthusiast could want in life was between west fourth street and west 10th street you had these incredible record stores like Revolution, Revolver Records. I'm going to get back to in a minute. I bought my first Doors bootleg there, <laughs> the Matrix tapes, which you were kind enough to tell me about this week. That's yep. how busy it was this week. I missed that announcement. So we got we to gotta delve into that in a bit. But I, they had Blinker Bobs on Sullivan Street, Thompson. I mean, and basically what would happen in between rounds of the chess tournament, I could walk a few blocks from the world-famous Marshall Chess Club where I would play. I actually played a few games at the wooden table where Bobby Fischer himself played. A lot mm -hmm. of history there. And I would go originally just looking for posters, books, anything new of the doors. And one day I went to Revolution, later Revolver Records, West 8th Street, between 5th and 6th Avenues, sadly not there anymore. It was an old-fashioned record store. Like, did you ever watch that show, that 70s show? Yeah, I've seen I've seen a bit of it. I need to go. My wife is trying to get me to watch back through it. But, yeah, I've seen bits bits of it. They have the reboot of another 90s show. But when the character High, Danny Masterson, gets a record store, his adoptive father bequeaths it to him, Old-fashioned record store with the records in the milk crates. That's yeah. what this place was. And people could just walk in and they'd be, you know, by letter, there'd be seven or eight milk crates with Ds. And I, I went through all the Ds because people don't always put stuff back in order. 
And I sold yeah. the studio album. I said, all right, I have those. So a young line poster, Brodsky. Yeah, that's a nice one. Why not pick that up for a few bucks? And then on the side of one of the crates, I remember red, ordinary red milk crate, this beautiful box. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, the complete matrix tapes yes, by yeah. a bootlegger company person, whoever, who knows who these people are called kiss the stone. And, you know, later on, I would research all these little menu tie and get all these books about different variations of bootlegs. There've been God knows how many bootlegs of the matrix tapes, but kiss the stone was probably the best. It had a bearded gym on the cover, I think, from Isle of Wight. Beautiful booklet inside and pictures talking about the shows in three CDs. And I had enough money. I had actually won some money in my previous chess tournament. I said, I'm getting this. Yes. And I went home that night on the train back to Long Island, listened to it on my Sony Walkman, which I still have. And it was just another world. You know, because I had never heard The Doors live before. Just the studio albums. And, and I'm listening to this intimate recording, as we're all going to get to in September. And again, we'll get into that in a little bit. Thank you for telling me about that. Um, yeah. it's, I love listening to it. There's like 10 or 12 people in the audience. But there's like a smattering of applause. Like They don't realize the greatness they're seeing. And Jim's improvisations, you know, he's coming into his own. And even though I sensed they were kind of raw, I yeah. mean, this was an incredible band. And I swore after listening to that, I don't care how much money I spent, and it's been quite a few thousand in the, was it, uh, 30 ensuing years about, yeah, I was going to find every live recording of The Doors that existed that I could get my hands on that greedy, ultra high-end collectors were not hoarding for their whole lives. And unfortunately, there are a few of those. But um, whatever was out there, I was going to get. And that's when things changed with the Matrix tapes because that was so pivotal. So, what? because that was a pivotal point for me. You you wrote me. I was at school on break. I said, what, the mate, they're coming out really with the soundboard? Like, they're not going to uh, resist duplicating songs this time, the whole thing? I didn't know about it. That's going to be a nice release come September. Yeah. So, and that that is a good news segment. And one of my friends, uh, somebody I've talked to, Travis Williamson, uh, he, he's, he's in Australia and he still scours those boards, the, uh, the boards for looking for doors news. And he found it on, on the Steve Hoffman, uh, TV forums and, and stuff like that. Oh, yep, yeah. yep. It's still around, man. Still some of those forums and the fact that this leaked on there. And I think what, if I had to guess what happened, I, uh, I think probably sometimes, what happens with these retailers is they'll the retailers will get the information and they'll get it sent in, to go in their system and somehow somebody saw it that way and it leaked. So if hopefully this is true and it sounds this sounds super plausible. Like I would I would almost be willing to bet money that it's true because especially 
uh, it just matter of factly it works out. I'm actually there's a television writer, director, producer, Rodney Barnes. He's been working on a, a recently a LA Lakers TV show on HBO Max. You can go check it out called Winning Time. That's really good. He's worked on a uh, Everybody Hates Chris and stuff like that. He he's Oh Boondocks was another big show he worked on a uh, an anime sort of funny adult show. But me and him are actually going to talk about Miles Davis on in June. We're going to talk about that. So it sort of worked out. We had this plan months in advance that this is leaking. And now we know that they covered a couple miles Davis songs and the influence has always been there. But yeah, going back to this, that they're going to release the complete, uh, it says a, a scheduled for a three CD release on September 8th, including two unheard miles Davis covers. And it, it, this set list looks great. And the two covers are going to be bags, grooves. And what was the uh, all blues is going to be another one. And those are 16 minutes plus seven, almost 17 minutes worth of songs right there of Unheard's Matrix stuff. I think there's 12 additional tracks, I believe. So there's going to be a lot on this that I'm uh, really looking forward to, man. And I'm sure you're looking forward to this. We're going to do an episode on it. Uh, I, I, Tarn said he wanted to do this, but uh, Michael, if you if you want to come on and, and say some, something about it after you listen to it too, I'd love to have you on too to, to give your thoughts about it as well. It's nice to hear because I know, I mean, there's a long and not always nice history with the Matrix tapes, how they struggled uh, to finally get the masters from Peter Abrams, who originally had them, you know, to and and throwing with all that. And then, of course, then there's no other way to describe it, a fiasco when they, when they um, did release it. But they were like third-generation tapes. And, yeah. you know... Even Jam Paul later on, I got to give him credit. I don't always agree with what he says, but he said, you know, Doors fans know their stuff and they called us out on it and rightly so. You know, we're not going to be happy with third generation tapes, especially when around that time, some snippets from the Peter Abrams masters were yeah. being posted and they sounded so incredible. And then a few years ago, they did finally put out a Matrix release, a good one. But my understanding was that um, John and Robbie, I'm trying to remember if Ray was still alive at the time. He but, was. Um, yeah, it was about three years yeah, before he. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically, they decided amongst the three of them that they didn't want to duplicate song titles, which. I mean, I understand on the one hand, but come on, we're Doris fanatics. We want the whole thing. Yeah. And if that's what we're doing this time, that's good. And I'll just say one more thing, because again, you're going to be talking about you said with um Tarn and uh later on down the road. I had heard rumors that that they had done a Miles Davis cover or two. I, I didn't know if it was confirmed or not, but yeah, if that stuff exists, yeah, I'm eagerly anticipating that. And, you know, I'm sure Bruce Bopnick's going to be involved. It's going to be top-notch audio quality. They should put a beautiful booklet out. It, it could be nice. And, and I thank you very much for time because this was a crazy week this week. I, I just had a lot going on. Oh, yeah. And I usually look for these things. I didn't know. Now, let me ask you this. because. Again, you're you're ahead of me on this. With this uh, apparent Matrix release in September, have the Doors themselves 
confirmed this release. See, they have not. So that's yeah. so so that's a definitely a caveat there that they have not. Which one thing I always didn't understand about the Matrix release is they got the the, the Abrams tapes before they made that release. So I never did get why. Even if you're not going to duplicate songs, at least use the better master. I, I, did they ever explain that? Did Jeff any or anybody? Uh, not very well, and sad to say they made that mistake on more than one release. I'll give. Besides the Matrix, I'll give you another particular one. One of my favorite Doors live audio and video, because it's on video, the beautiful half-hour show they did in Denmark. Yes, yeah. 1968. You know, they came out with, with it, but some collectors, at the time I was one of a few who had, then later on, of course, it circulates. Yeah. I tried. Sky know like 10 different things for it, but there was an incredibly high level, like master level quality audio of that show with the original spoken introduction by um, Edmund Jensen, I think was the commentator. And compared to what they put out, it's like light years better. Yes. And yeah. I never understood that. And also, I believe with um, the PBS critique show, yeah. That there are better qual, there are yeah. better oil sources for that. I know that because I have at least one of them. So oh, there's a killer yeah. video version too, man. Like the the video is so crisp compared to what they released. I I mean yeah, it's it it's boggles my mind. Even the Revolution release they did in like 2013 that every yeah. Doors performance where oh well we released this on the 97 you know collection you know the Doors collection or whatever and so we're not going to put like wild child on here, but we'll put light my fire from the Ed Sullivan show. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that just make you scratch your head sometimes. Whereas, and I know the Beatles kept all their masters and stuff. And, 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 and I know it's completely different. The way the Beatles release stuff, man, is, oh man, a lot years there. I mean, it's like night and day between the way the doors release stuff. And I, and hopefully the, the selling off, I mean, maybe changes that maybe these people, the new, companies willing to take more risks to make more money. I, I really don't know, but we're definitely going to see. And if this matrix tape make good is a part of that changing of the guard. Hey, then it's going to be looking up, you know, that's my opinion. Bring up some great points. I think part of where the future direction lies with regard to future doors releases, I would say two things. One, you know, I don't like thinking about it, but it's highly likely that they don't have that much left in the vault in terms of original material. You know, there are those reels that were being put up for auction years ago that had some source, some different versions of some of the early, I think it was heritage auctions, but then they stopped that that stuff, those pictures of those reels have been posted online. Yeah. I don't think Doors ever obtained them or not. But um that would be part of it because you know, after this matrix stuff, I don't know what else would be left because they've done 50th anniversary releases of all the albums. They put all the absolutely live shows out, you know, Pittsburgh, which I contributed to with some photos, Philly, Detroit, etc. Yeah. The other factor would be, if you read about it a few months ago, 
I don't remember the name of the management firm or the company, but a couple of months goes within the last year, they bought out yes. uh, Robbie and, uh, and, and Ray's estate, which I would imagine Dorothy Manzarek runs now. John kept his share, but so I guess because that company, in effect, would own 50%. They got Robbie's quarter and uh, Ray's quarter. I would think they would have a say in what comes out. I don't know how that works. Like, who would have the final say? They would, Jan Paul Artist Management. That, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to work. So it, the, the company was Primary Wave Media. And if I understand correctly, and, and yeah. I think this is all still up in the air, and it's it's just pretty much hearsay. I think, but I, oh, the, well, this is fact. I know that the Jam, uh, Jeff Jampool and all them are still going to be the Doors managers, technically. On paper, they said they're still, and they've came forward and said they're still the Doris managers. But as for what gets released and who gets to okay or not okay something, I, I'm not sure what happens. And I'm not even really sure what the Morrison estate, I know they released that on the last like record store days, but they didn't release it all. There's been some, uh, what is it, the sentiment? Yes, attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's still some weird stuff with the Morrison estate and that. I'm really not sure what that whole deal is. But I guess as, as time goes on, we'll see, we'll figure it out. In one way or another, and I know, uh, you know, John and Robbie. To me, truthfully, they, uh, I think Robbie lived a little harder than John, maybe or maybe not. I don't know, but just from reading his book, it seemed like he he uh, he did a lot more. And I, and from Robbie's point of view, he wants to help out more foundations and stuff. I don't. I know a lot of people are upset about it, and I, and I talked about it on the podcast. I don't see an issue with them selling their shares if they want to. I mean, they can do whatever they want. They've rode this legacy right. for fifty plus years, you know. Uh, so good, good on them. I say. But I think it's going to be definitely interesting. And, and you know, tr- moving back into what we're talking about, you're because you're one of the most, you know, you talked about helping out with Pittsburgh, bringing some photos and you're a prolific collector. You talked about your, your sort of movement to the nineties and talked about the matrix bootlegs. The nineties yeah. were such a time, man. And I wish I could go back and sort of experience some of this. And, and a lot of collectors are still sort of clammy talking about it too. This time where you got to trade bootlegs. I talked a little bit about to carry Humphreys about it, but, and, and hopefully I'm going to have him on, uh, ran the Doors Collectors Magazine for a while. Oh, you should. But yeah, but I was gonna, just going to ask you about what about the '90s when you started trading and collecting? You know, in the mid to late '90s, early 2000s. Perfect segue. I couldn't have written it better myself, my friend. Um, <laughs> we're moving forward to about '97 because what happened for five glorious years from '92 to about '97. My weekly or bi-monthly train trips into Greenwich Village to play chess and ransack all the record stores would pay off. It seemed every weekend I would find a CD, a poster, a book, something doors related, which I did not have. My collection grew. I had to get more shelves. By like 97 or so, it seemed I went to look in these stores a couple of times and wasn't finding anything new. And that made me sad because that was fun finding yeah. new stuff all the time like that. But the truth is what happened. Then I, then I got into trading, made a couple of good friends. One guy, Brian was a big collector. He helped me get started. You know, we helped each other out. He had some high end stuff that I didn't. He was struggling a little bit. So, yeah, you know, I would help him out. 
Like we we had a deal. Like I wouldn't give him cash necessarily, but you know he he was he wasn't doing well. He wanted to be able to get like DVDs for his kids and stuff. Yeah. Said Mike, well, you know, my daughter wants the latest Pixar release, whatever it is. You know, dude, buy it for me. I'll get you an upgrade of Smokey the Bear or something. And you know we would help each other that way. So he really helped me get into some high-end stuff. Um, I had a friend, Fernando from Peru. I haven't spoken to him recently. I, I know he owns a record store now. Great guy. I'd love to meet him someday. I did a lot of trades with him. Met some cool people. But then by about 2002, 2003, even now was getting harder to pull off. So, you know, that enters the final stage, which yeah. is like, 2002 to this exact second where to get things now it's like 99% auctions I must spend an hour a day minimum scouring eBay heritage auctions pristine auctions which incidentally pristine auctions has an original Morrison um, bell bond Signed by him, that is up for auction right now. Oh, that's great! It, it's up three times, but it hasn't met the reserve. It is up there. If you got the box, go for it. Uh, it's got the original mug shot, not a copy and a signature, but um, yeah, uh, Julian's Sotheby's. You got to look at these sites. eBay, of course, was the first one. I must buy minimum four or five doors items at auction a month. I'll actually hold up one, as fate would have it, just came in today. It's the original issue of Melody Maker from, look at the exact date, late August. Oh. August 31st, 68. Yeah. And it's got a beautiful article. It says, from the States, two incredible groups which promised the biggest freakout since Babylon. Here they come. Yeah. And you got Jepson airplane in the doors. I'd never seen this one before. The whole, I got the whole issue. Big write-up uh, with a lot of commentators talking about the show because the shows were coming up the following weekend. So anticipation was high. That's the most recent thing I got. And then busy as I've been this week, I did send you some photos of yeah. few things. So one thing that I thought was interesting. So, and Michael, I, one of the reasons I had Michael on is because he is definitely, he, he has one of the, Michael, you truthfully have one of the most unique collections I've seen because it's not really, some people focus on, Hey, I want all these signatures or whatnot, or I want, you know, throwback issues or something, but you really have like a, a really nice mix. I mean, you have, Pre, you know, I think advanced copies of books, uncorrected proofs of books from Robbie and uh, who who else? Judy uh, Huddleston and and the Wild Child book. I know you have the first version of that before it got pulled from shelves. But you also yeah. have like some handmade nesting dolls from like that I thought were so interesting. You have yeah. movie props from the Doors movie, and you also have I know you've got a big a pretty. I mean, you've got a couple different Morrison signatures. But the most unique part of your collection is the the jackets, I think. Is the Morrison jacket. Oh, the immortal Robert Lewis coat that he had. He yeah. wore a, a Westbury 68. 
there's a video cl- clip of him on the beach with it. It was like unknown like soldier, maybe. Fur. Yeah, it's like kangaroo fur, and that I get teased about because I saw one years ago at auction because they don't come up that often. I got it for maybe a hundred bucks, and the truth is now not including the three which I gave to charity because they wore out a little bit or it rips. I gave them to charity. I have 10 of them in my closet and three don't fit because they're probably women's sizes. Sizes are different. God, I love that coat. On a New York winter night, it keeps you snugly, wuggly. It's such a cool coat. And if anyone wants to bother to look, there is. There are actually two of them on eBay now. One, I think, about 200. I don't remember the other one. If you want one, check the size, go grab it. Yeah. And one thing, cause I collect, I've recently started getting into doors collecting and, and I never was because growing up, I was more into video game stuff and, and I've bought a lot of the older consoles now and a lot of box copies. But, okay. but one thing I've always like the doors collecting, it, it was always such a, such a, it's like a big beast. Like, what do you, what do you collect? I mean, there's so much to collect and you sort of grabbed all, but you're one thing that me and you sort of have a kinship on. I think is you, a lot of stuff, you know, there's some people out there who buy, hey, I want to buy this autograph, this Jim Morrison autograph for, you know, f- a few grand or whatever, but you, a lot right. of your stuff you've got for deals and you got before the price has really shot up. Didn't you? A few there's, and that's a good segue. Um, that, that's true t- with some of them. There's one item I'm going to find out soon if I got a good deal. And I did post it on my website, and I think you had commented on it. Yeah. Um, A a Doors collector friend of mine wrote me mm, five, six weeks ago. He was asking me about some of my European contact photo sheets from 68 I'd be willing to make them a deal for some of them. I said, you know, we could talk about it, but they're, they're on eBay, 70, 80 bucks also if you want to look. If not, we could talk about it. I said, but you know, let me look for you. Because I have untold numbers of boxes. And I was looking through some boxes. And in the box where I found what he was asking about, there was this um, binder. It I had purchased this from an arts and manuscript dealer in 2003 in Manhattan. I don't remember the name of the dealer, but it was a, a real arts dealer. And so I had, I, I had a door shirt. He said, you know, you like the doors? So I said, yeah, I, go, I have a, a Morrison autograph. And, you know, do you want to see it? I said, all right. And he said it was this one was interesting for two reasons. First, it's it says the full name, Jim Morrison. Usually he signed to you know Jay Morrison. Mm-hmm. This has Jim. And we all know there are eight million fakes out there. I got burned once or twice years ago, but not for a lot of them, hundreds, not thousands. It happens, it's part of the growing process. But this one I took a gamble on. For 200 bucks in 2003, because it came with a court affidavit. The original owner, who was a resident of West Hollywood, went to court and it says how he got it. He worked for an AR guy named Hank Geary, who had a manager with Siddons, had a meeting with Siddons in the doors, and he got 
Jim's autograph. For a long time, I put it away. I figured I was naive. It's probably fake. But then when I found it again a few weeks later, I was looking for these contact sheets for this fellow collector friend of mine. You know, and I did some comparisons. Again, I have a to be clear, I do have one real gym sig. It is the earliest known Doors concert contract. Uh, Jim and Robbie signed it. It, it. it is real. I do have a real gym sig. I can go to my grave with that. I got four of them, four contracts, two from 66, two from 67, from a guy who knew the concert promoter, James Salzer, who promotes some door shows. But those contracts are impossible to find. So whatever happens, I have a real gym sig. But yeah. with this, I said, you know, 20 years later, let me go online. There, and there are some people who are damned good at determining Jim fake six. I give them credit. I'm not an expert on it. But I looked at this one, and uh, you had um, mentioned it also. I didn't see anything blatantly fake about it. I think it's worth writing PSA, professional sports authenticators. I'm actually going to send it to them in a couple of days. I'm going to try to get it authenticated. So I'm not getting my hopes up, but my point is I'm not saying people have never lied in court before, but this would be pretty extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I was looking at it, I mean, you, and I think I'd posted to you before we even talked about doing an episode because uh, I was looking at it and the few times he has wrote Jim that your signature sort of, it looks almost like a wave scribble, like, like almost a kid would do with the gym yeah. and it, it looks very consistent. He has a very consistent way of doing his eyes instead of just dotting them. He sort of almost puts like a comma in the air and he always has a loop on his Owen Morrison. It looks yeah. like. And so I, I think that in the end also that last end looks really good. I would say, and I'm far, I'm no, I'm no expert or anything, but it looks, I think it looks great. I, I, I can't wait to hear what you get back uh, because yeah. it looks, it looks really good to me, but yeah. So that's one of the, one of the cool things. Another something else you have, and you have the 1974 Memorial Mass card for Jim and Pam, and uh, and you said you've never seen any other one come up. That, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful items in my collection. I take pride in it. That came up for auction. I saw the original eBay thing. I'm thinking 06, roughly, from a collector in the UK put it up. It originally belonged to a Rolling Stone journalist. I think it was Judith Sims, I think, who attended the ceremony. She knew Pat. And it's such a beautiful document. You know, except for a few people in the Corson family. You know, actually, I'm thinking about it. I don't know if anyone from the Morrison family attended that. But, you know, I mean... Pam's parents, I'm sure, were there, her sister. Outside of the Corson family, a few journalist friends, who would have that? Yeah. And that came up for I got it for about 600 pounds, what, 750 American dollars, whatever. And funny thing, about a month later, the collector wrote me back. She said, Michael, you know, I, I know I can't make you sell it back. I regret it now. Yeah. I said, I shouldn't have let it go. And she made it clear I can make a nice profit selling it back. 
I said, I promise I ever get another one. I'll talk to you, but no. And I, word of honor, and I ransacked the world looking for door stuff. I've never, ever seen an original of that come up again. It's so beautiful with the Edgar Allan Poe quote in there. And the one page I pointed out to you, it's got a stain on it. That was the original owner's. You know, obviously she was mourning Pam's loss. That's a teardrop on there. I mean, what a beautiful touch. Yeah, I don't think I made the the connection that that was an Edgar Allan Poe t- quote. I would, I, I will have to. Uh, I've, I'm going to have a person on here who was a he's a television critic, and he for 50 plus years. And I was going to talk with him about some of the Doors television shows, sort of get his perspective from a television critic side, and just talk about the shows themselves. But uh, he he just recently got through writing a Poe book, so that's an interesting connection uh, to Poe there. Of, of sort of sort of strange. I love the press kit too, the Doors LA Woman press kit. It looks like the album, except with a white background instead of the yellow of the sleeve, and it gives you yeah. a preview in the book. It talks about their eighth album, and and it's printed up, and it's you can tell it looks like it was printed at Electra Records. Uh, oh, it was printed at Electra Records in New York. It says so that that definitely is an interesting little. Uh, press packet i didn't know that they had those back then yeah i don't think i've seen any for the other albums not quite like that the only thing i could think that would come to mind there was a press kit for the first album that i think might have included tickets to an early show there was some kind of really unusual advertisement or promo material in the for, for a, a first album, it was a promo though. I'd have to get the specifics on that, but no, like that LA Woman one, nah, for Strange Days, Waiting for the Sun, and the others, nah, I don't think I've seen one like that. I, I don't think so. so I um, thought, I thought that was a really cool piece though, that something like that was floating around because I think yeah. I, I, you think of press kits or I do it personally as a more modern uh invention, maybe you know, when modern being the last 30 or 40 years or so. But the fact yeah. that, you know, a lot of that stuff is going around then is pretty cool. One of the odd things was this, uh, it was a religious magazine called Together from August of 71. And it had Jim Morrison on the front, very um, crudely drawn with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. But it 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 was, it's very strange piece, I would say, for it is. Morrison obituary. But it's unique. Yeah, there was a, a nicely written article in there. Very unusual because it was, that was, it was. Came out of Buffalo, New York, a few weeks after Jim died, but it was a religious publication. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't expect that to be the source of a passionate Jim obituary. Yeah, that's another one. I've never seen another one. Yeah, I can try to send you the article in the future. You know what it is? It's such a big newspaper thing. It's hard to scan it. Yeah. But if I can, yeah, I'd love to. Um share that that's a rare one and then just mention one or two more you know before we you know kind of close out yeah, uh, yeah. i've gotten more into lps rare lps i love looking for test pressings mm-hmm. acetates i think again it's been a hectic week i think i sent you two that were in my mind um an original test pressing of strange days from yes the 60s. yeah those are incredibly hard to find very very hard to find and the other one i love i'm gonna get it's one of the ones 
See, in a couple of weeks when school's done, I'm using this company. I'm going to get some of my rare records ultrasonically cleaned. It's for like 150 bucks. They'll send you a packet so you can carefully mail them the records. And they gave it the state-of-the-art sonic cleaning solution. So they sound good. Uh, so I'm going to get some of these cleaned. Besides Strange Days, one, I want to get cleaned. It's a really rare version of four songs off the Soft Parade put out by the Armed Forces Network. And yeah. what's rare about this is that it's in mono. And with the Soft Parade album, you know, as collectors have argued over the years, that was the first album that was really only in stereo. There was never a dedicated mono mix, just like a fold-down mono. We fold down the stereo. But these Armed Forces releases were mono. So I've never seen the song, The Soft Parade, in pure mono. So that, and I was shocked. I got it for like 35 bucks. Yeah. And and what I think is interesting about it, it's got, it's on a green label and the airs, the, the armed forces radio and television services logo is a lot like the doors. I don't know if they imagine they had to do that on purpose or maybe they didn't. Maybe it's just a, a, you know, design thing, but it looks so much of the doors and the four songs they chose was shaman's blues, wild child running blue and the soft parade. And that, that, that is a, such an interesting thing. You also have a, a test printing of roadhouse blues, which I thought yeah. was interesting. Yeah, that, I don't remember the person's name or put it up. That came from someone who worked on an American prayer, I think worked, I guess it was involved with it somehow. Yeah, it's an actual acetate from the making of an American prayer. Just that one song, though. I played it one time when I got it. Yeah, that's another one that's incredibly rare. I think there was another one. Or black uh new black polished chrome but another collector grabbed it like yeah I, I love test pressings acetates i have a collector friend who actually has one of the six original acetates that the doors shopped around in 65 oh, man yeah god that's that's a few bucks there but um yeah it's yeah i'll just say you know it's it's to conclude it's it's a passion the guy, Brian, who got me started with high-end collecting, he told me once, he said, Michael, you're looking for rare door stuff. You're going to fail 90-something times out of 100. But, man, when you find something, something that few people, if anyone, have, it's just it's incredible. I'm not saying I'm the biggest collector. I'm not. There's some European collectors who are phenomenal. I think my collection's nothing to sneeze at. And, you know, it's also, I'll say my pursuit's been pure. Word of honor, I've never sold anything. I've only traded and bought your stuff in my life. In my old age, I'll sell my Morrison Sig and this other one if it's real, you know, a little retirement money. Yeah. But um, I've never sold anything. I've never made a profit from it. It's just, it's just a passion. And, you know, it's a nice diversion because life is hard sometimes. And sometimes if I had a bad day at school or whatever, I could look at some auctions, try to find something new. It's, I love it. 
and I'm never going to stop. Yeah. And I think that's one of the good things about doors collecting is there's a lot of things you can collect. Uh, you know, you can, I don't know, whatever you collect, you, you can have like an ending, like say, Hey, I want to get, uh, you know, like for myself, a certain number of boxed, uh, original Nintendo games or something like that. You can get, you can hit your number and you can get there with do- collecting door stuff though, especially the way you collect it. There's always something to be found and there's always something that you don't know about or you didn't know about. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that's cool. I'm going to go over just a couple last things on your collection. I got one more question for you. Yeah, sure, sure. And because I thought these, what I thought was so interesting is these 90, the, the 91, I talked to Randall Johnson here recently who worked on the original screenplay for the doors before, uh, it was eventually Great broadcast. I yeah. love that. Oh, I pr- appreciate it. And he had so much info, but you have a lot of props from it. And like the, the reproduct the reproduced albums where they re- reproduce the artwork as them and the magazines from there, the, you even have some awesome, uh, storyboard art. The, the, the native American art is something killer. And if you, if I can, I would love to repost some of these items along with this podcast, if you're okay with that, even some of these magazines like bachelor magazine and, and some of the other ones, the, the, the reprints, I think that was interesting. But if you were to, so you you have you have amassed such a collection, man. And if you were to give any advice to somebody like myself or somebody who's still you know in the game trying to collect nowadays, maybe they're just starting a collection. What what advice would you give somebody trying to start a Doors collection? The pursuit itself is worth it. Got to have a few bucks. I've never been a millionaire. I mean. I've never made more than like in the high fifties in my life. Teachers, you know, we're, we're not rich people. You know, sometimes I would scrimp and save to put money aside for little auctions and stuff. I'd say focus on one area at a time. Like, you know, let's assume you have all the studio albums. You have just about every book in the English language written about the band as I do. Then I'd say, all right. Maybe start looking at LPs, you know, rare pressings. There are so many pressings of each of the albums. You, you know, there, there are people I see on the board, Steve Hoffman, et cetera, talking about, you know, the Santa Monica pressings of the albums and Terre Haute and how the colors are different, which mix sounds better than other delicious little menu tie that you could talk about forever. But yeah, I'd say, Focus maybe on albums first. You know, if you're into photos, there are a lot of photos. One thing, incredibly hard to find because people usually don't want to part with them or unpublished copyrighted ones. And I do have about 20 of them. Besides the Pittsburgh ones, I let the doors use three of them. I have eight from Westbury, unpublished. Newsday here in New York used two of them. They interviewed me for Jim's 50th anniversary uh, a few um, two years ago. I have 10 rare ones, which I'll probably never part with from Montreal 69. Oh, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I bought from a collector who got them from the original photographer, Montreal 69. Um, and I'll just quick funny story about the Pittsburgh photos. Yeah. I'm sure you've listened to all the absolutely live shows. Philly was on 5170, Pittsburgh 5270. There were a buckload of Philadelphia photos. Everyone brought their Polaroid or Instamatic, whatever. Yeah. The following day, 
I know people didn't bring their cameras. Before I offered to let the doors use my photos, because I wanted my name on a door CD. I wasn't trying to get money. I did not get paid for it. Just got my name on it. I wanted to help them. That would be a cool thing. There were only like four or five Pittsburgh photos, black and white, taken far from the stage. There were no others in circulation. So that's why mine were um, of use to them. So, you know, such photos are hard to find and you got to have a few bucks. But I mean, to answer your question, I'd say focus on one area at a time, unless you're mega rich, you got to be realistic. Focus on LPs or photos. I've seen some people on Facebook, like the one group doors collectors, they like those colored vinyls. They'll have Roadhouse Blues and like blue and green and purple. I don't get into that, but that's pretty cool. But focus on one area at a time, I would say. Yeah, or find something that a particular area. If you if you only want some Doors magazines, man, go after Doors magazines. And and I'm uh, sure, you know, and also something cool nowadays is there's a lot of websites like Klarna and ShopPay where you can do like paying for over like you know, two months and with no interest and you can get, get some stuff, you you know, go through eBay using some of those sites and split um, payments up. If, if you're not willing to, you know, put the money up up front, I know, you know, it may be if you, if you have to use something like that, maybe you don't need to be buying stuff, but Hey, I'm not here to talk about somebody's collecting habits, but Michael, yeah. again, man, this has been a great interview. Uh, and if you do have time, I would love to talk about, we do have just this, the two auctions real quick. Do you want to mention those before we head out? Yeah, there's one and people might want to look at it. Cause I've been eyeballing it for a few weeks. It's of an original test pressing for absolutely live. I think starting bid was like one fifty. It's got like a colored drawing of the electro logo. Washington. Yeah. It's only the first LP sides one and two, not both LPs, but test pressings alone are hard to find. The other one's an LA woman with the promo hole punched into the cover, but I would exercise caution with that because I'm careful when I buy promo LPs. Some there are fakes, they'll have like the promo sticker on there. For me, for it to be a true promo, and I've discussed this with collectors, it's got to say for promotional use only, or have the word promo, on the record itself. Yeah. If it's just on the, on the jacket, you know, for promotional use only, it doesn't mean anything. That's why, like in the last year, I've seen a number of copies. There's one on eBay now of the first album, Seller's claim it's a factory sealed original copy promo of the first album but you know it's sealed it's not open and they want like a thousand dollars or more i wrote a guy a few months ago i said look i'm, I'm thinking about it but i want to see a picture of the actual lp show me the lp that it says for promotional use only and i never heard back from them so mm. again i'm being careful I don't know for sure, but if it's just a sealed record, they're not showing you the LP itself and it's as promotional, I'd exercise some, some caution. You know, the ones I have say for promotional use only, 
or if it's like Spanish or Mexican one, it's got the word prohibida on it, like sell prohibited. You know, those are real promos. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and yeah, and and sometimes if it's too good to be true, maybe it is. You know, uh, and maybe it's not. I don't know. And I think just use discretion here. Michael, thank you so much, man, for being on. We're going to have you back to talk about Bakersfield for the anniversary of it in August. And uh, I'm psyched. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about that too. And and you know that's that's another show that was supposedly recorded for Absolutely Live was released a little bit on the Bright Midnight Sampler that I don't yeah. think we I don't think we've ever heard anything more about that, have we? Yeah, I'll tell. You, now I'm going to save my thoughts for that one. Yes. I'll listen about a hundred more times before that. I am psyched for that. We'll set up a date just before we go. I think this would serve us both because you are now kindly my moderator on my Facebook uh, group, helping me out. If I can put a little plug in. Go my ahead. Facebook. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's called Unendurable Pleasure Prolonged. That colorful title came to me. When I was asked to take over the group in 2020, it was originally called Jim Morrison and the Doors. I didn't like that for two reasons. One, there were like three or four Facebook groups with that name. It's not not catchy. But also, there was a specific case, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I could swear it was when they did a show in Cleveland. I'm thinking 68. The announcer goes out. Says, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Morrison on the doors. And Jim was pissed. He came, the guy came back. Jim said, No, dude, we're the doors, not Jim Morrison the doors. Before we go play, go back out and introduce us the right way. And the guy did. You know, I love the fact that Jim cared about the band that much. And the, so the reason the, the actual name, Unendurable Pleasure Prolonged, Crawdaddy Magazine, great writer Chris Weintraub saw the doors early, 67, and he's uh, described seeing Jim and the doors as unendurable pleasure prolonged. What a great three-word quote. I said, that's what I'm calling. I had a good moderator with me for a while, Joanna. She she said she's been busy with stuff. So that's why I kindly asked you to help me out a little bit. Appreciate you helping me with the group because it it is a bit of work. It's not a huge group. Only a little over 2,000 members. I don't just pick everyone except, except, except. You have to actually answer a few questions. You know, I care. You know, it's the fans there are passionate. And, you know, I'd like for them to hear the broadcast. And um, it, it was a pleasure doing this. Uh, you know, I'm going to give you credit. You beat me to it. I thought a couple of years ago of trying something like this. I didn't have the courage. I'm glad you're doing it. Everyone, please listen to Bradley's series, including this one. So, Bradley, is this like the 13th or 14th one now? Well, I'm going to release one hopefully this weekend, which is going to be a little bit off the beaten path. But I talked to a, a woman named Sharon uh, Haugen, who she, her her daughter actually was friends with Ford Fudd, uh, Fudd Ford growing up and well, and sort of knew him, but she passed away from, uh, she had a battle with anorexia. Some, and so her mom's real, really big in advocating for some, uh, eating disorders. We talk a lot about eating disorders, a little bit about the door. She also grew up near Pablo and Ray and Pablo used to come over to the house all the time. 
and she it's she's in, she's in her eighties now, so there's not a lot of information that she's able to give. But I, I thought thought she had really important something important. So it's not all doors related, but that so this will be fourteenth, I believe. If uh, my number might be off, because I have some bonus episodes here and here, here and there. Uh, talk cool. about record store releases and stuff, and that's something I know. Next time with Bakersfield, I want to talk about too. Is I want to talk about the 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 releases and stuff we haven't gotten yet, like Bakersfield. So um, that'll be fun, and and I really appreciate you let me top on the door site with you and help moderate it. There, there's some sites out there, and if you want a a door site that has that has great uh, posts about, especially from collectors and stuff like yourself, that have stuff that some of these other supposed door sites that market themselves as a you know hey the for true doors fans some stuff you see on the site you won't see anywhere else especially from your collection and uh i think that's a a experience that cannot be equated so uh, michael again yeah. thank you man for everything oh thank you there are only two two besides our group that you're helping me out with there are two facebook groups i participate in because a lot of them i thought the quality went down over the years and there was infighting I just want to mention my friends, one group, Jim Morrison Fans Global, a great Doors fan named Grace Ayana runs it. She does a great job. And another one, Ship of Fools, great site. Yeah. Janet Karen Revel and Wendy Bachman do a great job. So I just wanted to throw them in. Bradley, buddy, it's been a pleasure. What can I say? It's been unendurable pleasure for long, buddy, hey. and I'm... Liked for August in Bakersfield. Yeah, hey, and Michael, anytime you want to come on, if you get a great new piece, I would love to have you on anytime, man. If you want to uh, come on and talk about your collection, there is the door is always open for you. Thank you again to Michael Papasino. You can find more of his collection by searching for his group on Facebook, The Doors, Unendurable Pleasure Prolonged. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching for Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in two weeks. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. Music loud.